and ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, our Old Testament reading this morning, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, the first uh, 14 verses, and just keep this in mind as we preach this morning, go to Romans. This is coming off the heels of God's covenant renewal with his people and the promises that he puts before them in verse, in chapter 29, and the need for repentance and forgiveness and their duty before Lord, the Lord to follow him as their people. So chapter 30, beginning in verse 1 of Deuteronomy. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind along with the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and the enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we might hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now over to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Begin in verse 5. Romans chapter 10 as we continue on. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, for that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses 
and is saved. And our reading there this morning, may God bless it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much, Lord. Thank you for your word. We see just the the continuity, Lord God, the unfolding story of redemption that you hold, Lord God, before us. And I just pray this morning that you would be with all of us, Lord, to, to, to give us understanding, to give us wisdom, to change our hearts, to change our lives, Lord God, that we might be more devoted to Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. So we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. All right, this whole section in Romans, uh, beginning in chapter 9 for real, is the question about the, the nation of Israel and the Jews, the, the, the chosen people. Why, why, why aren't they all coming in en masse? What's happening here? And Paul's answering that question, and he does it in terms of God's sovereign election. And that's what we're teaching here, that God is sovereign. We're, we we bring forth the word. We do what we're called to do, but it's God and his spirit as he chooses to work in lives. And that's what he actually does. <clears throat> and Paul is teaching that. And he's saying, that's why, you know, not as many as those whom you thought were in the kingdom are not coming to Christ, and those who you wouldn't think or would come, the Gentiles, those that don't have the law, are actually coming in to the, to the kingdom. It's God's sovereign election. So that's in the background, especially, well, it was in the foreground early on. It's still in the backdrop of everything that we're learning uh, through these chapters, uh, especially 9 through chapter 11. So just have that in your mind. Understand that. And last week, we saw the fact that you can't save yourself. You can't do that. You can't do it on your own. It's, it's, you can't do it on your own righteousness. And that is like the default position of every single person, right? How are you going to get to heaven apart from Christ? 99% of the time when you ask people, go ahead, ask your friends, ask family members that don't know Christ. It's like what I do and what I don't do, right? What I do, if I do something good, God's going to see that and he'll take that into account, you know, and, and, and I just, and I just hope in the end my, my good outweighs the bad. That's kind of the, the hope that we have. But we saw that doesn't work. That's not what it's about. The trouble is, we saw last week especially, is that most people do not believe that God is as holy as he truly is, man. That he is holy, righteous, and just. Like evil can't come into his presence. His justice says, no, you can't do that. His love, he sends his son to die for our sins. But in his justice alone, if you face that, you won't be able to stand. You can't say, look what I've done. Well, I've tried, God, or I've done my best. No, that will not stand. You're going to come under the judgment, right? So so we don't see him as holy as he is on the one hand, and then we don't think we're as sinful as we are on the other hand, right? We don't, I'm not that bad, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm okay. I, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that or, or so and so, right? That's what we do all the time. We tend to think we're a little better than we are, or a lot better than we truly are when we compare ourselves with Scripture. So, you know, the good news is, is the, the saving faith, the truth about saving faith. And that's what Paul's getting to here. And it does belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, first of all, is the end of the laws. We saw last week, this is still a little bit of a review. I just want to go a little bit more in depth than I did last week. So back to verse 4, actually. It says, For Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what's that mean? When he sings, what I'm just or tried to articulate here in the opening, as I was opening up, that you can't do it by trying to keep the law. That, that he's the end 
of the law for righteousness. If you want righteousness, you can't do it by trying to do things, right? To do good, more good than bad, to try to keep a set of rules, a set of laws in that way. This means, when it says Jesus is the end of the law, that through his perfect obedience, because of his love for sinners like you and me, he kept that law perfectly. The thing that we can only, you know, in a very messy, terrible way bring before God look at my no Jesus brings a perfect righteousness perfect obedience keeping the law at every single point and when we believe in him his righteousness is imputed to us so we're counted as righteous our sin is given to him he pays for that that's the beauty of Christianity that's the beauty of the faith he met the requirements of the law that we could never meet he met the demands of the law kept them perfectly they're imputed to us as we believe on him so god sees you as righteous even as he punishes his own son man that's really that's the heart of it that means that now it doesn't mean that the moral law is gone it doesn't mean that okay no more law for us no more you know walking by the law that's that's not it that's and and some places in evangelicalism. That's what we're trying to say, that we're not under the law. We're not, and we're not under the law as trying to earn salvation, but the law becomes a delight to us now. The law wasn't abolished. When you think about the commandments or uh, you know, the moral law of God, it's not abolished. It's not like a free-for-all now. It's not done away with. It hasn't been eradicated. It's not invalidated. That can't be, man, because then the world would be lawless. Now, people are living as if there's no law of God. They're, you know, just transgressing and it doesn't matter. We're just doing what we feel, doing what we want to do. Absolutely, but it doesn't mean that God's law is not valid and active, right? If it wasn't, what would we follow, right? What would you follow? People say, well, now we, we follow the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Jesus Christ? Go ahead, read the, read Matthew, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we see the law of Christ. It's just a reiteration and, and expression of the commandments, right? So when he says, you've heard it said, not, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, when you look at a woman lustfully and you want her in that way, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That just goes right back to the commandments. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. When he says as a Christian, he says, look, man, you used to be a thief. Don't steal anymore. Well, there's the commandments right there. But go to work with your hands doing that which is right. So it goes back to the commandments. It's not like, oh, we get rid of the moral law. We get rid of the commandments. We're just free to live this way in Christ. No, no, no. Well, we follow the law of love. What's the law of love? What is that? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's... The two tablets of the law just combined down. That's what it is. That's So as Christians, it's still the standard. God's law is still the standard. We're no longer condemned by it if you're a Christian. It doesn't, you know, oh, show us our sinfulness. We know that it does, and Christ has covered that. And so we know that Christ has kept it, and we walk in that. It's a guide. It's a delight. We love your law. That's what it means to come to the end of the law of Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, it's like, oh, no commandments. I could just kind of do what I want, and God's going to still love me. For no, 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 no. I want to live for you now. I want to be faithful to you. So what it looks like to have a righteousness not based on the law, but by grace through faith. And I want you to see this morning that salvation, again, is the work of God. It really is. Because you're going to read a passage this morning, and it's going to sound like something saying, okay, here's what you have to do. 
and just kind of forget everything that we just learned about God's sovereign election, how he chooses his people. Now it's up to you. No, no, this is sovereign election is still in the backdrop. It's still here very much in these passages this morning. So up to this point, Paul's telling them, remember last week he said, you know, you have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he's saying it's not that way. You're ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish your own righteousness. Paul's saying, no, 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 we can't do it that way. We we don't have righteousness to establish that's that meets God's standard in that way. And, you know, so so we, we're putting God aside. He says, no, we don't do that. He says, it's not this way, not this way, but here it's this way. Look at verse 6. He says this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that's to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that's to bring Christ up from the dead. You see on that, when he says here, he goes back to Deuteronomy, what we just read a moment ago, this is the continuity of Scripture, he goes back to Deuteronomy, verse uh, verses 12 through 14, and you want to say, well, isn't like Deuteronomy 30 about what they, you know, what they need to do to avoid the the, the curses and to enjoy the blessings? It's, it comes off the covenant renewal to be sure. But the question is, how are they able to obey God? How are you able to please God and, and, and have those blessings poured out? How are you able to do that in the very first place? Can you do that on your own? Is that something you must drop? Is that something they did in the Old Testament? Hey, in the Old Testament, they lived that way and that was the way of, no, no, no. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 6 through 8. And here it is. This is how we do it. This is how he does it in us. This is why there are those who, who really believe and know as he opens our eyes and then others say, man, what is he even talking about? I don't even get this. You know, this is just like, it doesn't make, right? This is how. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, okay, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That's the way we come to know and we love and trust, as he does that work inside of us. That's how we obey his commands. That's how we could please God. As he changes us, he circumcises our heart and puts that desire that we may live in that way. Verse 7, the Lord will God will put all these curses on your foes and the enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord. Keep all of his commandments that I command you today. See, it's all of grace. It wasn't by work back then either. People say in the Old Testament they work, New Testament's great. No, man. It's all of grace all the time in that way. And then ultimately, as you see the redemptive history, it's really cool because what he was saying, Moses was saying back then, is applied by Paul to Jesus Christ. So what they were doing back then was looking forward to Christ. So when he says, um, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that goes back to Deuteronomy 30, or who will descend into the abyss, that's to bring Christ up from the dead. What he's saying there, these apply directly to Jesus Christ. So it's not as if we're going here to find salvation. Christ came down for us to bring salvation. Don't go up there. You're not going to find it up there. You can search high and low. You can do all you can to find salvation. No, the one who came down from heaven is the same one who was raised for our justification. That's the application. That's the fulfillment of what's being said in Deuteronomy 30 all those years ago, and it points to Jesus Christ. Salvation was never about keeping or doing 
but it's always been about God's sovereign grace. That's what Paul was pointing out here. That's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian this morning, you've had that grace poured into your heart. That's why you need to love Jesus Christ and serve him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind because you have been delivered. Now, there's still blessings for obedience and curses or consequences for disobedience, to be sure, but always... Always, we belong to Jesus Christ. This points to and looks to Jesus Christ who saves us. And then he goes on. I want you to see the source in verse 8. Check this out. What does it say? The word is very near you, in your mouth and on your and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That's the gospel itself. He's saying the word is very near you. God says, I'm going to put that word. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to put this in your heart. I'm doing this. You're not doing this. It's not something that you do. It's something that I grant to you by grace. So Christ is the source of that faith. This entire section, so we don't, if you're witnessing or talking to people, we always say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. We, we miss the that verse before that, it says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Who puts that in your mouth and in your heart? This entire section is not, let me just say, it's not like a formula. We've kind of turned into a formula for salvation, you know, or part of that. And I don't, I don't want to say we absolutely preach the gospel, of course, freely and fully. We make the appeal. We speak this promise. If you do confess with your, your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart, God, raise him from the dead. But don't mistake it for some formula for salvation. Because that confession comes from a faith that actually actually flows from regeneration, that God has already worked in your heart. So when we're confessing Christ and believing in our heart, it's not like, okay, at that moment he's going to save It's because he's already saved us, because he's already worked, because our circumcision heart, because we can't call upon his name until or unless he changes our heart. So don't lose that in everything that Paul's speaking to here in these chapters, that this salvation is from God. As the gospels preach, as you proclaim it, as you talk about Jesus' death, our sinfulness, his love, his life given for us, it's the Lord who puts that word of faith in your mouth and your heart to confess him and to proclaim him. Who puts in your mouth and in your heart? It's he. He does that. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, Ezekiel 31, 34 says this. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. See, I'm going to put my law within you. That's what I am doing for you. It's not something you do, and then I get, this is what I do, so you can believe, so you can obey. And I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me for the least from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I put this love in your heart. I put this faith in your heart with which you believe as a Christian. No credit to us, all glory to God in that way. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, and I will give you a new heart. I'm going to take the old heart, that heart, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That means a heart of stone is that when... You're, it just, it's a rock, man. When the gospels preach, you're just gonna deny it. You're just gonna reject it. You're gonna say, no way, man. I don't believe this stuff. Get away from me. This is not, right? I, I don't believe. My heart is hard. It's God who takes that heart for each one of you. You know this. 
You didn't soften your own heart, man. He changes your heart. And then you believe with that. That way he gets all glory, honor, and grace that he deserves. And then we are filled with that love of Christ. So he takes that heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh with which we believe and receive him. Do you understand? Do you understand that? He puts that in our heart. Saving faith has never been and never will be a good work. That faith that you have, saving faith is not something, listen, you don't have something deep within you that's saving faith, okay? I have it down there somewhere. It's in my head somewhere. It's kind of dormant for right now. It's not something that you muster up along the way. Well, I'm just going to believe. I'm going to try real hard to believe in God. You know, it's something that I do. It's not something you discover in yourself and then exercise it. No, 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 no. It comes from from outside of us. He puts that faith in our heart, and that's what we believe in. Then we confess. Then we believe in our hearts that that comes out in our lives. Saving faith is a gift from God. It's it's foreign to us. It's outside of us. It's outside of yourself. He grants that to us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us very plainly, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work that nobody could boast. When you're a Christian, you cannot boast in anything of yourself, can you? Can you say, I've done this, that's why God loves me. I've done this, I haven't done that, so that's why God has you know, shown favor to me. Because I've been a good boy, because I've been a good girl, because I try. No, you know that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that is a gift from God, not something that we just muster up or discovered. The only way a person can truly, sincerely, actually believe in Christ is when he changes you. That's the thrust of this passage. That's the thrust. And you know this. That's why we feel the frustration so many times when we preach to people that we love. We try to tell them about Christ and they just kind of reject and reject. And then there's other people you speak to them about Christ. And yes, I believe. Well, what makes the difference? You're smarter, you better, you're more insightful, you're, you know, more intelligent that way. No, it's Christ, man. It's a spirit that he opens our eyes. And then we can't help but believe, you know, we can't, it's that grace, right? Irresistible grace. We don't want to resist it. We can't resist it. We love him. That's the only way that, and that's what Paul's saying here in this section. And that's still explaining why not so many of the Jewish people were coming to faith at that time and why Gentiles were being brought in. He's explaining that. See, salvation is not by deciding so much to believe or being convinced. And that's what we've been trained with in our country for a long, long time. You know, it's, it's, it's up to you. You decide. You make that choice when you're ready to believe. You know, talk to people all the time. Well, I'm not ready to believe yet. I still need to live my life. I still want to party more. I still want to do this. That, that, no, no, that, that, that's not at all what, what Scripture teaches. It's not deciding to believe or being convinced. It's not like saying, okay, here's the gospel. Here's the evidence for Christ. What are you going to do with it, man? Come on. You, you, you decide what you're going to do. It's not like that. And if you're saved this morning, you know that. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you know that that's true. It's not that we don't present the evidence. It's not that we don't preach. We absolutely do that. God uses that. But when he changes you, it's not this. It's not you deciding. It's not what are you going to do with the evidence. You know, even those people that try to disprove Christianity, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, people like that, they go about trying to disprove Christianity. We're going to prove this thing false. 
And then they have being converted. When you talk to them or you listen to their testimony, it's not that they come to this place and say, well, you know, I looked at all the evidence for and all the evidence against, you know what, and I just made my decision that I can't, I have to go with the evidence. So I guess I'm going to be a Christian. No, they'll tell you when they were looking that they just were overwhelmed by the grace of God and the love of Christ. They had to believe in him. Of course the evidence is there for them. But it wasn't about that. It's not this strict, cold decision that you make. Weigh this, weigh that. Oh, I guess I'll be a follower of Christ. No. He chooses you and we chooses you. You will believe in him. And you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ has risen from the dead. It's not about us. It's not so much a decision. Right? Well, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. It's not so much a decision as it is an acknowledgement, right? If you're a Christian this morning, then you just basically acknowledge that you're, he is, I'm not the person that I was yesterday. I love Jesus Christ now. I could barely explain it, but this is what I do, and, I, and I'm changed forever in that way. You know that. It's more of an acknowledgement than a decision that you make, because it's not in your hands, man. It's in his grace and his mercy and his love poured out on us. It's not, well... I guess I'm convinced. Instead, it's been, it's, I've been converted. You know, it's like, I guess I'm just, yeah, I guess I'm convinced. I can't fight it. No, I've been converted. It's not, I've chosen to believe, but it's more like, oh, yes, of course I believe. Of course I've been, I, I, I'm in him. See, this, when he says that, that faith that he puts in us, the transformation is real in your life. There's a clarity that you've never had before about Christ, about who I am, what I need. I see it now. Like my eyes have been opened. I'm not in the dark anymore as I was yesterday. Today, I see it. There's a lack of doubt. Think about when you first believed. Did you doubt at all about Christ? When you were a Christian, a babe in Christ, as we go on, sometimes we doubt more and more of faith or we're challenged. Man, when you're converted to Jesus Christ, there's nothing more than you want to be in the Word, that you're loving Him. You believe everything because it is true, and you trust Him implicitly and with everything. There's a conviction of being, you're convicted of your sin so much, and at the same time, you're filled and overwhelmed by his love, right? It's the same thing. I know I'm such a sinner, and I can't believe that he loves me and that he does this way, that he gave his son for me, that I'm trusting in him. Oh, at the same time, that's what's going on here when he says that I'm going to put this in your mouth and in your heart. He does that, right? He does it. For some of you, if you raise in the Christian home or a Christian, you know, ethos and milieu, whatever, you, you kind of, it's that moment of realization that, yeah, he has gripped my heart. I really do love him. I've been around Christianity all my life, but I really never knew Christ in that personal, intimate way until now till he's gripped my heart. I've seen it in my own kids' lives for sure, right? They come to that realization. For other people, there's seen just complete joyful brokenness. Weeping, uncontrollable weeping, stunned amazement that God has saved you. This is what it is. This is what he does. This is regeneration. This is what the love he puts in our hearts. We know it, and we don't want that life. We want Christ and him only. From atheists, people that are just atheists, to new agers, intellectuals, to streetwise people, rich to poor, Worldly success, people that are very successful in the world, to junkies on the street, from practicing homosexual to raging, crazed, heterosexual people. They just, that's kind of what their life is. I've seen it. 
You've heard it. You know it. That transformation that takes place. So the riches don't matter anymore. Jesus Christ does. It doesn't matter that I'm poor. I have all that I need in Jesus Christ. I'm done with this life. I don't identify in that way anymore. My identity is in Jesus Christ, not in my feelings, not in what I want, not what I think. It's in Christ alone and who he says I am. That comes from him. Do you understand? That's what he's seeing here. That's the, the, the thrust of all of this. I listened recently to... Uh, Testimony of Beckett Cook again. I don't know if many of you guys have heard of Beckett. He's a cool guy, but he was just immersed just in the whole homosexual lifestyle and loving it, just living that life freely, openly, in Hollywood, popular, new movie stars, all that kind of thing. He was in a bookstore one day, and they saw a young group of Christians reading their Bible, and he just went up to them and said, you know, what do you think about homosexuality? Is that a sin? And these young Christians were strong in their faith, and they said, yeah, but there's a Savior, Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins. He was with a friend. The friend just walked off. They not want anything to do with them. But Beckett was intrigued. He was being drawn. He actually went to their church. And do you know when he went to their church, after the preaching, after the word was convicting him, this guy who had no intention, he was happy in his life, the way things were going, he was challenged by the word, went to the church, and as the message was preached, God used that to where Beckett Cook was just sitting in his seat. He could not move. He was weeping. He was sobbing openly after the service. People came around him and prayed for him. That's how it works. That's what he does when the word is preached. That's how we're saved. He puts his love and his faith into our hearts. You can't do it on your own, and I can't do it. We can't do it for others. So we don't want to guilt people into saying, okay, you know, or 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 try to persuade them so much. Obviously, you want to try to persuade them of the truth, but we need to lovingly, firmly continue to pray and press the gospel, the claims of the gospel, knowing that the Lord is pleased to work in their hearts. That's it. That's what we're called to do. So you need to love with the love of Jesus Christ and understand, but by the grace of God, you're on your way to hell for sure, all the time. It doesn't matter how you're treated. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter those things. Their, their heart matters. You need to love the image bearers of Jesus Christ. You need to know what what's at stake, so you need to bear with them. You understand? As we preach to them. This is how and why, verses 8 and 9. But what's it say? The word of the Lord is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is how, this is why. Somebody didn't like that, huh? (laughs) That's all right. It's convicting. (laughs) This is how and why you confess with your mouth. He puts it in your mouth. It follows when he puts it in your mouth that you can't keep it inside. And you know this, man. If you're a Christian this morning, you know that you are going to confess Jesus Christ. You're going to express your faith in Christ Jesus. You're going to own it. You're going to tell it to the world. It's not a secret. 
You want everyone to know and you do not care who knows that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and that you love him because he loves you. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I love him. I trust him and I need him. He's my only hope in life and death. You're articulating your allegiance to him when you confess with your mouth. You're identifying, you're associating with your savior and we should never be ashamed of that or never be afraid of that or never hold back on that. You know, we're not arrogant about it and we're not boastful about it in a sinful way. But we're just saying, this is the fact. He's my Savior and I love him. And I trust him because he loves me. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And what that means, I want to take a moment here and I want to explain to you or try to just push home, bring home the point of what it means for Jesus Christ to be Lord. Kurios. It means he's your Savior, right? That he died for you on the cross, that you believe and trust him, that he's your king. But it means that he's everything to you. He is your all in all. And you don't want to fight this if you're a true Christian. You want it. You want to be surrendered to him, right? For Christ to be your Lord means that you belong to him. When you confess him as Lord, you belong to him completely. You understand me? You belong to Jesus Christ completely. Every inch of your life is his, and nothing belongs to you. I don't want to hear people say, oh, I'm going to give the Lord 99% of me, but this 1% I'm going to keep right here. This sin I'm just going to keep over here, and he's just going to have to deal with me in that way. No, you give everything to Jesus Christ, and you live for him. He is your Lord in that way. If he's your Lord, that means that you bow, you bend the knee to him and you bow your heart to him. You acknowledge that you're the clay. Lord, I am clay. I am nothing. You're the potter. You're everything. Use me. Let me be an instrument in the hand of my Redeemer. We are so far away from that. Even many Christians don't want that. We want him to bless us, bless us, pour out your blessing. Give me this, give me that. No, it should be, Lord, I want to be yours. Please use me. Please do with me what you will. It doesn't matter as long as I'm faithful to you. It's the desire to know him better, man. That's what it means when he's Lord, to serve him more fully, to serve Christ, to honor him, to represent him well. Don't you want to represent him well with integrity, with humility, and with honesty? Don't you want people to see Christ in you instead of our, you know, just our little sinful ways and making sure we get our way and making sure we do this and being that. No, no, I want them to see Christ in me. You understand that? When Christ is your Lord, he overrides your feelings, man. We're living in a day and age where everybody's living on feelings. I feel this, so that must be true. I feel in my heart, I don't feel this love for this person, but I feel for this. Listen, as a Christian, his word overrides your feelings. It does. It must. Because he is, we're submitted to him. So if I feel a sinful way, I'm going to say, no, 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 no. Here's what God's word says. I'm going to submit to that. I'm not going to sin. If his word tells me that this is what I need to do, well, I'm going to do that instead of what I feel like doing because you feel like doing all kinds of things all the time. I feel like doing all kinds of things that are sinful. And we're living in a promiscuous day and age, this freedom, oh, as long as they love each other, oh, as long as they're sincere. Listen, man, if it doesn't line up with the word and you're a Christian this morning and you think that way, then you better rethink because you're not living according to the way and will of the Lord your Jesus Christ, who is your Lord. That means when he's Lord, it is his, his way. It is his word that overrides my feelings. Get that straight. Get that down. Understand that. Because our feelings 
deceive us. Our feelings trick us. Our feelings make us rationalize, minimize the word of God. Rationalize our sins. Right? That's what they do. Oh, well, the Lord understands. Everybody else is doing it. God, no, 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 no. His word doesn't change. You understand? You need to understand that if he's your Lord, you will strive for that. His majesty has mastery over your will. You know, it's it's your will against his. There's a, we still fight the flesh all the time. But when it comes down to it, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, you're going to say, no, 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 no. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. I want to serve you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's my desire. That's my hope. Understand? That's, that's what it means to make Jesus your Lord. People running around saying, oh, yeah, Jesus is my homie. Jesus is my friend. Jesus gets me. He doesn't, yeah, he gets you, all right? And you better watch out. Because you don't get him if you're not submitting to his word. And if you love him, you will submit to his word, man. I mean, you're going to fight it because of our sin nature still, but that's our desire, and that is your heart, and you will confess him as Lord. This is what it means for Jesus Christ to be your Lord. It's his ways instead of your rights. That's another thing. Jesus Christ is your Lord. Forget about your rights, man. You're serving Jesus Christ. Who cares what people say about you? Who cares if they're unfair? Who cares if they slander you? They need to hear the word of Jesus Christ. If somebody slaps you in the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Punch them back in the face? That's the desire for many of us. No, you give them the other cheek. Somebody asks you to go one mile, you go two. And you don't complain about it. You say, oh, look what I've done. Look how wonderful I am. You just do it because of the love of Christ. And they need Christ more than you need them to like you and love you and to treat you well. You understand? If they ask for the, 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 the coat that you have, you give them your shirt as well. That's serving the Lord in that way. That's what Jesus is teaching us in that way. That is his ways instead of your rights. Everybody wants their rights. If you're a Christian this morning, just forget about that. Don't count on that. Of course, <clears throat> it's good to seek you know, righteousness and so forth, but when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, what are you going to prefer? Your rights and you winning or that person hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus Christ by his grace? You've got to forget about it, man. That's what it means if Jesus is Lord in your life. That's what it means to, as, as he's Lord. If you confess him as Lord, that his truth is more precious than your popularity, that his truth is more precious than your prestige, that his truth is more precious than your reputation, right? That to be honest and to follow Jesus Christ, to, to be true, to live in his truth is more precious than your popularity. You know how many people, you know how many Christians just don't say anything because they don't want to be hated, because they want to be liked, you know? Because they don't want to be canceled, because they don't want to be this, they don't want to be that. Again, we never say it with this harshness or this, you know, sense of self-righteousness, but just the truth and love, man, that's all you gotta do. Is just lovingly tell the truth. That's gonna be enough to get you canceled. That's gonna be enough to get you, and if you're worried about that, well then you're not, then Jesus isn't your Lord in that sense. So you've, you've denied him in that way. Because that's part of what it means to be Christ. He says, count the cost, man. You count it. If you're going to follow me, you know that, that you're not going to be loved by the world. They're going to see you as hypocritical, insensitive, unloving, uncaring. Just not, it's not true. You know that in your heart of hearts, but that's going to be the perception because you're not giving in to what they feel that they really are when it's matched up with the word of truth and the word of God. You see? So just get ready. Just get used to that, man. And, and be loving and understand that. Be humbled by that. 
If you're worried about your prestige and your reputation, forget about it. You're not, then he's not going to be your Lord because if you're serving him faithfully, your reputation's going to take a hit. You might lose your job. You might lose these things. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord. You confess him with your mouth. You confess him as Lord. It's your willingness to lose it all. Are you willing to lose it all? than to rather compromise one word of truth. You tell me, don't, you don't have to tell me, but you tell, ask yourself in your heart, are you willing to lose it all, to lose everything, rather than compromise one word of truth? That's what it means if Jesus is your Lord. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. It's not this pithy little thing, oh yeah, I confess, I believe Jesus, come into my heart now and give me everything I want. No, when you, when you believe in Christ, he takes everything from you. So you're relying completely on him. It's not health and wealth, those jokers, those liars, those phonies, those sinful men that promise that. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about being faithful to your Lord Jesus Christ. Where your deepest desire is to honor him in every thought. The Bible says take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought to honor Jesus Christ. Every Every word that comes out of your mouth to honor Jesus Christ and not dishonor him and not put yourself up, not build yourself up, but to honor Jesus Christ. Every action that you partake, that you perform, you do to the glory of God. Do you understand? That's what it means that Jesus is Lord in your life. Right? Oh, I want Jesus as my Savior, but then I want to live as I want. You want all the goodies down here and then think you're going to go to heaven? Are you kidding me? A real Christian wants to walk in obedience. We do. We want to follow Christ in our heart and our lives. All of this, all of this, while knowing that Jesus continues to love you, to forgive you, will not forsake you, even as you as a Christian fall short of everything I just mentioned. And that's not trying to get us off the hook. Because if our Christians are true desires to do that, but we're not going to live up to that perfectly and know that he continues to love us. Know that he will not forsake us. Not He's not going to say, oh, you dummy, you didn't do everything. No, it's not like that. It's not like that. He loves us completely and he still loves us even as we fall short of all of these because we belong to him. He's not going to say, oh, you could have done better, right? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're going to know the love and the forgiveness of Christ, which should motivate us to be, to love him as we ought to now. You see what I'm saying? To be brave, be bold, be courageous, be strong, be loving, be done with yourself, be done with your feelings, and love and know the, the, the love of Jesus Christ and what it means to live for him because he has saved you from sin, he has saved you from Satan, he has saved you from death, and he saved you from hell. He is your Lord. He's your Savior. All right, he goes on and he says this. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Every true Christian 
is convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a big, big deal. That's a big deal. If you're, if, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't have you know, questions about the nature of it and so forth, but if you do not believe that Jesus was bodily raised on the third day from the grave, then you cannot call yourself a Christian. Oh, I love Jesus. He's cool and I love his teachings, but be raised from the dead. Come on. That's silly. That's goofy. No, no. Feed your Lord. Every true Christian is convinced of his bodily resurrection from the dead. We don't need proof. Although there's plenty of proof. There's so much proof out there for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as a Christian, do you need proof? Do you? We have it for sure. But you knew, because he put that in your heart, that he was raised from the dead. You understood that. Paul understood that. When Paul became a Christian, when he was converted, he went and he preached. And you know what he preached? He preached the life, the sinless life, the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection got him in trouble oftentimes. But every true Christian believes that. It's not a blind faith. It's not, oh, well, prove that to me, then I'll believe. No, I believe, and there's plenty of proof for it. So Paul says this. Check it out when he says this. So... Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would not have believed that just before he was converted. Now he is preaching the resurrection of Christ. We believe it. Not simply because of the proofs, because of the fact, the fact that Jesus preached it. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to uh, spit on me, falsely accuse me, try me, kill me, and I'll be raised on the third day. The Son of Man will be raised on the third day. He predicted it. The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would not see corruption. Psalm 16 says this, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. That applies directly to Jesus Christ. That's a prophecy to Christ himself. We know if he's not raised, what the consequences are. If Jesus hasn't been raised for the Christians, then we're out of here. Let's go. Let's go party. Let's go do whatever we want to do because there's no Christianity. There's no faith. It's the hinge. It's a great foundation. It's everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bodily resurrection. So if you're here today and saying, ah, I like some of the stuff that Jesus guy did, but the resurrection, come on. No, 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 no. You need to look to the Lord and be saved because every true Christian knows that Christ has been raised from the dead and we preach it and we don't hide that fact because that's the only way that he has been vindicated because it's true. He has been vindicated. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. It is very true. And so you need to reckon that. You need to believe that. You need to understand that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves his victory over the grave, over sin, over death, over the penalty of our sin. Well, I just want to close by noting the contrast. And I want you to heed this. I want you to remember this because as Paul's talking about this relationship, we see sovereign election behind all of this. And also comes down to this, the contrast. Heed this, please. You cannot be saved, and you are not saved, if you believe that you could get to heaven by doing your best. By trying harder, by being better, by giving certain things up, by doing other things, by trying to keep the law, and hoping that God will see you and how good you are, and then save you. If you believe that, then you're, you're, you're in deep trouble right now. That's not the way you're saved. That, you need to turn, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even this morning. But I also want to caution you. I want to caution others. 
you may not be saved. You may be in that very same category if you merely profess Christ. If you confess Jesus as Lord in your heart and serve him, you know that that's been in there because there are a lot of people that make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That happens in the church all the time. Why do you think people leave the church in droves? Why do you think people are progressive? Why do you think people are just deconstructing? Why do you think people are going to live? Because they made a profession of faith, but it wasn't in Christ. It wasn't a true, it wasn't, his His word wasn't near you, wasn't in your mouth and in your heart, right? It's on the surface. That shows, that's a big deal today. It's a big deal for many, many pastors were concerned. Are you truly, truly in the Lord? If you're merely professing Christ as Lord, listen, you might participate, you might come to church, you might go to the Bible study, you might do that, but you're not practicing the faith. It doesn't mean much. You're just doing it. It's just a window dressing. It's just what you're supposed to do, man. I'm supposed to go to church. I'll try this out, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. You might participate in the life of the church, but you're not practicing. You're not trusting in Christ. He's not everything to you. You might serve in some capacity, but you're not completely submitted to Jesus Christ. Okay, well, I'll do this, and I'll, and that's just almost kind of a workspace thing. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, because I'm supposed to be, because I'm a little Christian. No! You might serve all you want, but are you submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? There are people that profess Christ that do not truly know Him. You might say, oh, I want it His way, but you want it on your terms, man. You want it on your terms. You say, yeah, I want it His way. Yeah, yeah, up to a point. Well, now I want it my way. Because when he, when he interferes with my sin, whatever it is, then I'm going to say, hmm, no, not that. You know, I won't do that because I'm not necessarily inclined to that. But when he stops me from doing the things I want to do that are sinful, I love him, but I'm not going to be totally submitted to him. You want it both ways, man. You can't have it both ways. You can't. Right? You can't serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. Okay? That's it. You can't have just, oh, I'm going to have my little bit of sin over here. Well, I'm just going to disobey his word here. Oh, that was for back then in those cultural days. No, man, it's now. If you're sinning like that, you got to stop. you got to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. you got to stop playing games in that way. You'll suffer loss, but you're unwilling to lose it all. How much are you willing to lose, man, for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to lose it all? Are you willing to lose your little pet pleasure things? Are you willing to lose your money? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ? You might say that. You might say, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll suffer loss, but I'm not willing to lose it all. I'm not willing to lose that relationship, so I'm going to not tell the truth about God's word, right? Are you willing to lose it all? This is how you know. Oftentimes, if you're just merely professing or truly trusting in Christ. Obedience might be important to you, but it's not an imperative. All right, everybody, we need to obey to a certain point, just like I mentioned earlier, but it's not a must. He's still going to forgive me. He's still going to love me. If you have that kind of mentality, you better watch it. You say you want more of him, but you're unwilling to give yourself fully to him. You say you want more of him but you're unwilling to fully give your life to him. Okay, Lord, is this what you're calling me to do? You're calling me to do this? You're telling me to give this up? And and you're sending me over here? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to truly follow him fully? Understand? You say you trust him, but at the moment of testing, you quickly abandon him. Oh, I love the word. I trust the word. 
until something comes up that, again, conflicts with that and conflicts with my feelings and my nature, my desire. Yeah, I say that I trust you, Lord, until a, until the rubber meets the road, and then I'm going to abandon your word, and I'm going to do it my way anyway. Right? Can't do that. That's you got to be careful. Caution. The law can't save you. A mere profession of faith can't save you. Will not save you. True faith does. Faith that comes from God. By grace, you know you belong to him because you must confess Christ, because you must have him as your Lord, because you know that he was raised from the dead on the third day, and because you love him and you can't help it. It's not so much you made a decision, but he dragged you into his kingdom, and you belong to him.